Hello, greetings. Thank you for the gift of spending time with us as we continue to explore what God has made known in Christ and in the pages of Scripture. My name is Ethan. We am part of the Venice Church of Christ. We are a group of Christians who seek to be non-denominational disciples making disciples in Los Angeles. We'd love to hear what you have to say about what we're talking about today. Please let us know in the comments, and please subscribe to us. You can also find us online at VeniceChurchOfChrist.org or on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. There are times in our lives where we might have some sort of crisis experience where we need to grapple with and critically reassess a lot of core aspects of our personalities, our culture, our thoughts, our feelings, and actions. This is not a new phenomenon, but it has recently been associated with the term deconstruction. Now, to its critics and skeptics, deconstruction is simply rationalizing apostasy, and it's a sin, it's some kind of postmodern nihilistic fad. But should we let the critics or skeptics of anything define the meaning of that thing? And what really motivates a lot of the hostility toward deconstruction? What vested interests might the critics and skeptics want to reinforce or defend? Now, we can argue semantics, but there is a real and substantive experience underneath what is described today as deconstruction. And we can even see why a process like it proves necessary, according to Matthew 7, 24 through 27, that there is going to be this great storm that will hit, and a house that is built on the rock, a person who has heard Jesus and does what he says, will stand. But those who hear Jesus' words but do not do them at building on the sand will watch everything they have constructed uh, completely collapse, and its fall is great. So that's why we do well to consider deconstruction in some detail, and also to pay attention to some of the perils that might attend to a time of deconstruction. So in order to, again, understand what we're talking about, we're, we're defining deconstruction as the experience of a critical self-assessment regarding a person's faith, belief system, and or experience in a religious subculture, and is generally precipitated by some sort of crisis catalyst. Okay, that's the definition. What does that look like, practically? And even before we can think about deconstruction, we need to think about what happened that might lead to deconstruction. What comes before deconstruction? What is it that we might need to deconstruct? Now, we like to tell ourselves that we are independent thinkers who have reasoned ourselves into our current situation. But as the prophet Jeremiah saw in Jeremiah 10, 23 and other places, the people are very easily deceived and the human heart is very sick. And it's a delusion that each and every one of us has a set of ideas and feelings and practices that we are maintaining because of how we were enculturated and because of our life experiences that what we think and how we feel and act as a result are coming out of the conditioning we have experienced through what we were taught by parents, by teachers, uh, both explicitly and implicitly, by the way, the lessons we learned in school and in life, and our experiences and the complex range of feelings that we have about those experiences. Now, this foundation is fairly plastic in the first 20 years of our lives. What we establish in this 20-year period, however, is going to set up not just our understanding, but also our expectations about everything that's going to come before after it. Now, very rarely do we consciously think about doing this. In fact, it would be almost impossible for us to function if we consciously processed every reason why we think, feel, or act in, in a given way. Uh, the, the, the concept of rationalism in the end is just unsustainable for the amount of decisions that we have to make in any given situation or context. 
But this deposit of perspective, as we're going to call it, is the quote-unquote house that we have built on a quote-unquote foundation, if we're going to use the language of Matthew 7, 24 through 27. And if you think about your life, every single day you go through a bombardment of inputs and stimuli that we are making sense of through this deposit of perspective. And that's how we make discernments about the new information that we accept as accurate, what we reject for whatever reason, and so on and so forth. So every single day you get up, you see what the weather is outside, you have an expectation about what that's going to look like, uh, you communicate with people, uh, you have general expectations of how that's going to go. If something does not go according to the way that you expect it to go, that will be parsed out, and that will then be subjected to some kind of critique. Uh, and that might be because somebody is telling you something new about themselves or about somebody else. Uh, maybe, maybe you're listening to a political speech or hearing the news about something trying to grapple with what something means. Anything like that is how this works. And most of the time, we just implicitly accept or trust most of what we hear because that's just how we're able to function. And there are certain things that we are going to hold for critical review. The other thing to understand about our deposited perspective is that it's very sticky, that humans are going to go to great lengths to try to keep that overall story and perspective, even when a lot of the inputs they're receiving, the stimuli they're receiving, really start to contradict that story. There is a lot of discomfort that people have with cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance is when you're trying to hold two contradictory things as true at the same time. And generally, the way that cognitive dissonance is held is that when we are given some information that contradicts the way that we look at things, uh, the tendency we're going to have is to try to suppress, ignore, or reject what's not going to fit into uh, the paradigm that we've already established. And we also have a lot of confidence in that deposited perspective. It's what we know. It's the basis upon which we make judgments and determinations about everything we do in life on a daily basis. And again, we can subject it to critique, and we should, but we also have to understand that this exists for very good reasons because of how many things we have to deal with and that we cannot rationally uh, synthesize and, and, and go through induction and deduction by every single one of them uh, over and over and over again. It's just not going to work. Uh, so that's why that, that depositive perspective is there. And it has a lot of good functions, but it can also, in our corruption, lead us astray. What happens then is a crisis catalyst. Is there a possibility that someone could go through a season or experience of deconstruction without having any sort of crisis catalyst? It's possible, I guess, but it's going to be extremely rare. Uh, the crisis catalyst represents some experience that causes significant cognitive dissonance in terms of the deposit of perspective that's precipitating the season or experience of critical self-assessment. Uh, we talk about crisis catalysts in the abstract a lot. It's kind of the storm uh, that's being mentioned in Matthew 7 because these things vary significantly in terms of the experience, about the magnitude of the crisis it catalyzes, and everything else. The crisis catalyst might be as simple, quote-unquote, as having a conversation who had a different experience, someone with different experiences or understanding. Or maybe you read a book, or you hear a lesson, or, or maybe you're watching a TikTok, and you find out there's a different way of doing something than you've been doing it for years, and you kind of feel dumb for never figuring it out. Uh, but that has precipitated a crisis catalyst because you are receiving information that challenges the previously held beliefs and assumptions that you have. 
And if we think about it, the proclamation of the good news of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension, lordship, and imminent return is supposed to be a crisis catalyst for those who hear it. How is it that someone would hear the gospel and turn away from previous beliefs to uh, conform their lives to that new belief? Uh, that is a crisis catalyst. It forced them to stop and change the way they thought about the way they used to look at the world, and it caused a lot of dissonance with the way they had previously looked at the world. Major traumatic events also are major crisis catalysts. Uh, an accident, a diagnosis, or an experience of chronic or terminal illnesses, going through natural disasters or artificial disasters like war or, or mass shootings or something of that sort. Uh, we can also imagine crisis catalysts uh, coming from society. Uh, there a change in politics or policies, uh, gaining wealth or losing it, experiencing life under a different governmental regime, uh, exposures to messages of those involved in various cultural or social movements. Uh, so being confronted with the civil rights movement or something like that. In a religious context, uh, a lot of crisis catalysts involve even just conversations with people who believe differently and force you to reassess some of the things you believe. But in general, these days, it's been seeing or experiencing various forms of harassment or abuse, being accepted, defended, justified, rationalized, or even ignored. Uh, the people of God behaving badly and trying to cover it up. Then we have what we can call apocalypses. Uh, apocalypse coming from the word used to describe the revelation, right? Apocalypsis, which is really an unveiling, uh, an exposure. And this is when people in situations expose themselves for who or what they really are. Uh, we saw a lot of that, a lot of people have gone through that in the past seven, eight, ten years when it comes to uh, matters of politics, matters of the situation, the COVID-19 pandemic and things like that, where all of a sudden people kind of let you know who they really were. And then it, you have to grapple with that and what that means for you and, and your belief system. And of course, we could look at all kinds of other uh, possible crisis catalysts out there. There's all kinds of them. So all these crisis catalysts, or most of them, are, are not things that people have searched out. These are not things people enjoyed, and they didn't want them. And you don't put in your calendar, I'm going to have a crisis catalyst that's going to force me to rethink everything in a couple weeks. And a lot of people, when they're confronted with these crisis catalysts, will do everything they can to remain quote-unquote normal and to keep things quote-unquote on the level. Uh, very few people are going to actively embrace deconstruction. In fact, most people are going to be resisting it and trying to just hold on and sustain that deposit perspective. Again, like I said, it's really sticky. And we can see this throughout the Bible, right? When the prophets go out and preach uh, and tell people what God has said, uh, there's this hesitance and resistance to grappling with it. Uh, there's the resistance we see to the gospel. Uh, there's a lot of that going on. But at some point, it either becomes too much or something really hits to the point where critical self-assessment can no longer be avoided. It can no longer uh, maintain the cognitive dissonance. Uh, we'll have a lot more to say about that, Lord willing, when we look at Reconstruction uh, in the future. We can imagine a certain minor crisis catalyst that might lead to a minor deconstruction and then a minor reconstruction. We're using minor here all in quotes because it's hard to gauge such things. So again, maybe you're talking with somebody and you learn that some fact that you thought was correct was actually incorrect. And that we realized in critical self that that fact was incorrect. And then we changed our thinking and quote-unquote updated our deposit perspective to change that way that we looked at that thing and we move on with our lives. And that's something we hopefully do frequently. And that we may not even think too much about it. Now, we have to be careful because when we talk about that kind of thing, it allows some people to say, well, if, 
deconstruction just looks like just changing your mind because you got new information. That's all that's involved. And that's the reason why we're using the concept of minor, because you can understand that kind of experience in a similar framework. However, it's not nearly as traumatic. It's not nearly as much of a significant experience. And it would truly minimize the experience, the challenges, everything it, it that goes along with what is being called deconstruction today uh, to try to emphasize that kind of experience as the norm. Although, again, hopefully we're doing that frequently where we are in conversation or we are exploring things and we are have views that we have challenged. And then that's able to be something that we can use to update to hopefully enhance our deposit perspective, to gain additional perspectives, to get a little bit more depth or breadth to those viewpoints. And that is something that's very healthy to do as a disciple, ever growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, Second Peter 3 and verse 18. What's going on with most deconstruction is, again, a much more tumultuous and thoroughgoing critical self-assessment that we normally talk about in the abstract because how somebody goes through deconstruction is going to vary significantly because of the various things going on in their experience. But there are certain frequently observed aspects that go along with what deconstruction looks like. There's a significant level of alienation involved for, for deconstruction because there's growing differences between what they had believed and their present belief and experience, which often leads to alienation from those that they used to be friendly with or maintained as spiritual associates. Not necessarily because the person going through deconstruction wants it that way, but because the difference in belief has caused uh, significant separation. So it's the kind of thing Peter's talking about first Peter 4 about unbelievers, but it's happening, unfortunately, with people who profess to be people of God. There's a lot of people who, even in the process, will go through significant societal and personal withdrawal and will turn inward significantly. And it's not a fast experience, and it can often feel like unpeeling an onion. Um, and the crisis catalyst may provide an early starting point, an easy starting point, right? We can see, okay, this is what set it off, but... It's very hard to ascertain when a season or period of deconstruction has ended. We can, again, talk about uh, the recent COVID-19 pandemic experience. We all knew when that began, right? Uh, we started first seeing it in China at the end of 2019, beginning of 2020. Uh, everything shut down in March of 2020, right? But when is it over? And in, in, in this, as we are having this conversation in 2023, we're still really trying to figure that out. And that's the way it can work with a season of deconstruction. Now, what are the results of deconstruction? Well, a deconstruction experience generally involves a shift in perspective on at least some issues, beliefs, and practices. Again, it's very hard to generalize because everybody's going to have different experiences and therefore different results. There might be some who find it possible still to participate in the same church or association of churches as before, but a lot of people will not and will go elsewhere. People often find themselves in a different place, politically, socially, religiously, maybe even geographically. There are some who do, in the experience, go so far as abandoning their faith in God. Many others will maintain a faith in God, in Jesus, maybe even in the Bible, as the Word of God, but maybe struggle re with reconnecting with a group of believers because of the experiences they've gone through. And groups and circles of association are almost certainly going to look different to some degree or another. And most people will consider the crisis catalyst and the experience of deconstruction as rather traumatic. It's going to involve a lot of lamentation and grief involved. So these are the things going on with what deconstruction is. 
And that's how we're going to be better able to look at some of the perils that may attend to deconstruction. And as we talk about these perils, we're not suggesting this means you should avoid deconstruction. Uh, instead, it, we need to encourage people to, as they're going through uh, this time, or, or, or just to have in mind when they will experience times of deconstruction, to have these things to be in their minds to think about as they're going through the process. Because one thing that many people who've gone through deconstruction have mentioned is how they were entirely unprepared for the process. And part of that lack of preparation is because we haven't talked about these kind of experiences. You don't really hear in church very much about how do you deal with crisis catalysts and the um, process of grappling with them uh, that comes afterward. Uh, but that's something we really should be doing. And hopefully by doing this, it provides you this opportunity to consider these things uh, in, in your future faith experience. So the big peril of deconstruction is over-deconstructing. Because humans have a tendency to overreact to various actions. Uh, this is something we see over and over and over and over and over again in uh, Christian history. Uh, we can see it, uh, some people going so far, they end up going to become more Judaizing uh, because they are insisting too much on the uh, Old Covenant. Uh, then you have the Martianites insisting too little on the Old Covenant. You have the Gnostics who are uh, in denial about the nature of God in Christ and have gone to Greek. Uh, and there's ways in which you can put yourself in weird positions by denying truth principles about God by going too far away from certain philosophical constructs. Uh, you can see how the Protestants in the 16th century, in their reaction to the Catholic works framework, uh, have overreacted in the faith only and, and not being able to really conceptualize well with the New Testament about how we uh, manifest faith through our behavior and that you can't really separate that out. And we can go on and on and on about how people overreact to things. And so in terms of deconstruction, we can understand the importance of that critical reassessment of that which is built on the sand, that which was assumed to be just part of what is true in God and Christ because it's part of our enculturation, but that we are shown in a very powerfully vivid way that it all falls apart and that we have to really reconsider such things. But there is that peril always to go beyond, to go not just to deconstruct what was built on sand, but also start trying to deconstruct the things that were built on the rock of saying and doing what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 24 through 27. Now, Jesus is the truth in John 14 and verse 6 and Colossians 2, 1 through 10, that he is the treasury of all wisdom and knowledge. And so the truth of what God has done in Jesus can withstand critical scrutiny. That doubt, skepticism, and deconstruction can be good and used profitably. But we can understand them kind of like an acid. They're a corrosive element. And if you have an acid or a corrosive element that there's no restraint on, it can corrode everything and lead to nothing. And that is why the critics and skeptics will always talk about it in terms of going to nihilism. And it can't. Uh, anytime you have uh, unfettered skepticism or unfettered doubt, it's going to lead to nihilism. And so we need to be perspicacious about deconstruction. We need to doubt our doubts. We need to challenge ourselves in terms of what have we subjected to deconstruction and why? Why are we deconstructing that? What haven't we wanted to deconstruct? And why are we avoiding trying to deconstruct that? And that we need to try to maintain a spirit of humility and charity throughout. That we need to recognize other people or maybe different places. Uh, that we need to be open to the fact that they may be uh, malicious in some of the things they're doing. Uh, but we also need to understand that they are acting according to their deposit of faith, their trauma reactions and experiences and other things of that nature uh, as we go through this whole process. 
Another peril uh, is, according to the proverbial, being mad at the dog and hitting the cat, in which people might blame God or Jesus for the things that the people of God have done badly. Now, theodicy, the challenge of how can there be a good God in charge of this world when there's so much evil around, is a live issue. However, just throwing the whole idea of God away doesn't really solve that, because it then forces us to ask, why would we expect anything to be good or bad at all, or why there should be meaning at all? And that, again, becomes overly corrosive, and it doesn't come to a good place. A lot of times, this is exactly what happens, and you have the over-deconstruction, this frustration, that it seems the more somebody is enmeshed in a very unhealthy environment, the ones that are often termed cultic, the greater the likelihood that when they uh, leave that Net, that that network, they go to the other side and they become atheistic. They they start casting church. They don't go and become part of a, a faithful church. They just completely abandon faith because of the trauma of the entire experience of what they've done. And it's an over-deconstruction, not a very critical one, because it's not trying to sort out what was good necessarily and trying to find a way of holding on to that. It's just kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And the Psalms and Jeremiah provide deep resources for people in anguish, people who are going through maybe deconstruction experiences and trying to reconstruct, uh, regarding how God could allow all kinds of evil and ugly things to happen, yet still be there, still be sovereign. And so we need to be careful about that as we deconstruct. Uh, another major peril of deconstruction is to be so focused on one particular problem or challenge or a collection of them, because truth is very rarely found at an extreme that the opposite extreme of an extreme tends to be just as wrong. And again, we've mentioned that in, in over, overreacting. A part of the overreacting is people in being so focused on one air back themselves into another. On top of the other ones we just mentioned, among uh, uh, God's people, I've noticed that there is a lot of concern about Jesus' humanity because of the way that Jehovah's Witnesses have emphasized uh, concerns about that. And so they get themselves back to the point where they start denying Jesus' humanity, that he is our brother in the faith, that he is the son of man, that he is fully human as much as fully God, and back themselves into a kind of Gnosticism because of that, where the truth of who Jesus is, it, yes, the, the Joe's Witnesses have gone too far in denying Jesus' humanity and what it means in some ways. Uh, on the other hand, to go so or his his divinity, excuse me, uh, to go so far divine, to reject parts of his humanity, and just as wrong. You're a lot of times with the Holy Spirit. This has also happened. We've seen how the Calvinists and the and the people who are various Pentecostal groups we feel have gone beyond in in their emphasis of the work Holy Spirit to the detriment of what uh, God calls upon us to do and the kind of spiritual gifts that may be involved to the point where they back into a posture where they're denying the place of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer, which is just as wrong. And so as we deconstruct, we need to be as concerned about what we might be falling into on the opposite side as we are with the changes and challenges that we are facing in front of us. Another major concern of deconstruction is the alienation and isolation that it engenders. Because again, there's a natural impulse to want to turn inward in a time of crisis. And when you're in a period of this, it's like grief, you do need to do some internal processing uh, however, we are made in the image of God in Genesis 1.27, and as Jesus has let us know, God is one in relational unity in John 17. And so we need to be part of God's people, and we need to resist the urge to turn away from everyone. 
And it's important to find people whom you can trust to walk with you throughout your deconstruction experience because uh, none of us can do this alone. And the more that we isolate, the more that we fall prey to the temptations of the evil one, that we must never, in seeing how evil has infected the people of God and caused us to believe things we should not have believed, does not mean that we should just throw all that away because then we just embrace evil all the more. And as always, we need to resist the temptations toward arrogance and judgmentalism. That we need to assess the fruit people bear. And sometimes that's what we open up and we see, wait a second, this is not good. This is not healthy. Uh, but judgment belongs to God in Christ. And he is the one who will certainly judge. And we see that in Romans 14, 10 through 12, 1 Peter 4, 5, and 17 through 19. Yes, a lot of hard-earned insights can be gained going through deconstruction. But deconstruction should not lead us to imagine that we are now the enlightened elect and that we can therefore cast aspersions on others. And we must remember the limitations of our perspectives and situation because we do better in humility to seek to encourage people to understand and explore what might be unhealthy and wrong about their viewpoints and practices. And keeping in mind, when I was going around before I had my crisis catalyst, how would I want people to treat me who have gone through the kind of experiences that I've now gone through? Which is a another way of looking at the golden rule, Matthew 7, verse 12, that as you would have others treat you, thus treat them. This is the law and the prophets. So in this way, we've looked at what deconstruction looks like and the perils that may attend to the experience of deconstruction. But if we stop and think about it, everything we mentioned about what could go wrong with deconstruction are things that exist for all of us at all times. It's not just in terms of deconstruction, right? Aren't we often tempted to overreact and go beyond what is sensible and healthy when we are confronted with something? We might have a lot of reasons why we might get frustrated with God or Jesus in our lives. Whenever we zealously resist a given set of challenges or errors, we are tempted to back ourselves into the opposing set of challenges or errors. And aren't we maybe continually tempted toward isolation and alienation, especially in our individualistic age? And who among us can deny that we are frequently tempted to be arrogant and judgmental? And that is why we all do well to continually submit ourselves to God and Christ to trust in Him and to be a source of strength and support for those who might be experiencing a season of deconstruction. So how can we better understand what might be going on when someone deconstructs and what perils attend to deconstruction and to life in general? We'd love to hear your thoughts. Please let us know in the comments and subscribe to us. And if you are going through a period of deconstruction, we at the Venice Church of Christ are seeking to be a kind of community where you are welcome, that you'll be accepted, that we will sit with you and, and, and work with you and encourage you through whatever you're going through, give you the space you need at times uh, to be able to process what you're going through and to hopefully come out with a much healthier faith and perspective and to be encouraged in your faith in God, in Christ. Let us go to God in prayer. Father, hallowed be your name. We're so thankful for all the blessings you've given us. We're thankful for you and your love, care, and provision for us, for the material blessings of the creation, for every spiritual gift you've given us in Jesus, for the redemption in his name, for the hope of the resurrection, that you have sent your spirit uh, in him, and that we are now able to be your people, that you've given us uh, that uh, the spirit as a gift, as a down payment for that salvation. We pray that you would strengthen us in our inner persons through the spirit so that we can be sustained to know the great love you have for us in Jesus and what you're accomplishing and what you want to accomplish in and through us. 
We are especially uh, prayerful at this time, Father, for those who are experiencing a time that we have spoken about in terms of deconstruction, where they've gone through some kind of crisis catalyst, and they're grappling with what they have believed and and what what they what they're supposed to do as they move forward. And we pray that you would give them. Uh, grace and patience and to give them wisdom and insight to move forward in a healthy way to be able to sort out well what they have gained which may not have been healthy may not consistent with what you have made known in jesus but to hold firm to what is true uh in in you that we can be people of truth and that we can uphold what is good and right and true and not fall prey to the temptations of the evil one and to be working for the powers and principalities over this present darkness Continue to guide and direct us until the return of your Son, that we can share in the resurrection of life in him. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Again, if we can be of any service to you, please reach out to us at adventuretochrist.org. Or also we're on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. And may the Lord bless and keep you until we're able to meet again.